You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope everyone's doing good. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. We have just begun a study through the book of Daniel. We started last week and we continue this week. I'm really excited about this book. It's an incredible book, highly applicable, highly relevant. I want to dig right in and go ahead and jump into it. So you recall last week, if, if you were here, if you weren't here, what we saw last week is that Daniel and his friends are, uh, the odds are against them. They're backed into this corner. They've been assimilated into the Chaldean culture, into the Babylonian empire. Uh, Things are looking very bleak for them. If you remember last week, I mean, they were taken from their homeland, uh, forced to learn a new culture, new customs, new language. They were were redefined, renamed. You remember all the recultured, all these things. And remember the question that that we... (laughs) felt weighing on us as we, as we looked over those, those verses last week is, how are these guys going to make it? How are these four guys who have been taken from their homeland and now are exiles and strangers in this, this dark and wicked empire, how are they, they going to make it? How are they possibly going to make it? That was sort of the tone of last week. But what's interesting is, like Aaron just read, when you skip to the end of the chapter, chapter 1, you remember what happens. What did, what did Aaron just read? That these four stood before the king. They were found to be ten times better than all the other uh, folks in the crowd, all the other uh, protégés that were in this training program. Remember that? They rose to the top. They emerged as the best of the best. And then it says in verse 21, read verse 21. It's really interesting. It's easy to skip over it, but it's very important. It says in verse 21, Daniel was there in the king's court standing before the king until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus is not Babylonian. King Cyrus is Persian, which means that Daniel outlasted the Babylonian empire. That's what that means, point blank. That Daniel made it until the next empire came and and ruled and uh, and took over. So here's Daniel and his friends, odds against them. Things are looking very, very bleak. And they outlasted. They triumphed. In the end, they emerge as the ones who are victorious. It's this really surprising ending that you didn't see coming because the odds were against them and they were backed into a corner. It's a surprising conclusion of triumph. These exiles, they succeed and they persevere. I think a good word to describe these men and what's going on here is that, and I use this word all the time, and I think it's very, I purposefully use it because I think it captures what Christianity, following the Lord, produces in us. These men, they flourish, don't they? They're flourishing. The remarkable thing about these exiles is not that they succeed by worldly standards, although they are pretty successful, or that they have a suitable salary, I'm sure, although I'm sure they're taken care of, or they achieve comfort and influence, although they certainly have those things. More central to what's so attractive about these exiles is that they're unshakable. They're durable. They're attractive in their living all the while as exiles. They flourish. That's what I mean by flourish. They're durable. You can't shake them. They they stand before the king and they outlast the Babylonian empire. Daniel specifically outlast the Babylonian empire. It's those qualities that cause them to flourish. And look, when you outlast the empire, when you outlast Babylon, you stand out as radically different, as something inexplicably different. You look at that kind of person like Daniel and say, what do you have that I don't have? 
That's what Daniel embodies. That's, what he, that's who he is. Now, here's something to think about, okay? I'm, I'm trying to set the stage for why this is really important for us. This is Daniel's diary, essentially. This, he's, he's writing, he's chronicling his own life over the course of you know, his entire life in this, in this uh, uh, strange land. You have to think to yourself, why is this in the Bible? Why would this be included in the Old Testament canon? What, what's Daniel trying to accomplish by chronicling these events of his life? And here's what he's doing. He wants Judeans, his fellow people and Israelites, who are in exile right now while he is, or later on when they're captives in their own land and they're reading their Old Testament, he wants them to see that what is typical for Daniel, what happens to Daniel is going to be what's typical for them and what happens to them. Essentially, you'll be exiles, but you'll persevere. So he wants to encourage his readers that, hey, your life will be no different than mine. What has happened to me is what's going to happen to you. Your expectations are this. It's going to be hard. You're going to be in exile, but you'll persevere by God's grace. He will help you, and you will outlast the empire. He wants them and us then to understand that what's typical for him is what's typical for us. So like Daniel then, we are purposed to flourish. We ought to flourish as exiles in a strange land. We, like Daniel, are meant to be durable. We, like Daniel, are meant to live attractively. We, like Daniel, are meant to stand out, not because we're healthy, not because we're wealthy, not because we avoid death, illness, or loss, or poverty, or any of those kinds of things more centrally than anything. It's about character. It looks like otherworldly joy. It looks like flourishing. So the question I want to ask today that's going to guide our way through these verses is this. How do we flourish as exiles in a strange land? If you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your home. We are meant for another. But until then, we are traveling. Until then, this, this is our pilgrimage. So how do we make it as exiles? How do we make it in this pilgrimage, in this strange land? Three things we're going to see today, okay? One, got to have godly resolve if you're going to flourish. Two, you need to have revealing trials if you're going to flourish. Three, you need God's help if you're, if you're going to flourish. Godly resolve, revealing trials, and God's help. And I want to make one last note here before I pray, which is this. We, uh, you know, we uh, cherish the gospel here. The, in, preaching is very important here, but there's another thing that's also very important here, which is small groups. It pretty much is the way that we disciple one another. It's the way that we grow in community together. What we do is we digest the sermons. We talk about the sermons uh, the following week. And I would say this, if you're not in small group, this is the time to get plugged into small group because this book, Daniel, possibly more than any book we've studied before, is more applicable and relevant to right here, right now, our lives. And the point of small groups is to internalize this truth that we're going through here, to internalize it, to process it, to critically uh, grapple with it. We need that if you're going to get the most out of the study. You need that if you're going to get the most out of the book of Daniel. So I want to tell you, shamelessly, if you're going to small groups, keep going. If you're not in a small group yet, you're selling yourself short. You're not going to get everything out of Daniel that you could get if you're not plugged in. So go ahead and join a small group if you haven't yet. And if you're going to a small group, keep on going. It's going to be very rich, okay? So we're asking ourselves this question, how do we flourish as exiles? Three things. God, they resolve revealing trials and God's help. Let's bow our heads, pray very quickly, ask God to be with us, and jump right into it. God, we ask you to be with us in this hour. Make us wise people, Lord. Uh, this world is so complex, 
it's hard, Lord. And so often we just feel inadequate to solve everything and to navigate everything. So God, I pray that you would instill within us the kind of character that is essential to flourishing as exiles. Please, Lord, through the example of Daniel and through the truth of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, I pray, God, that you make us wise, attractive exiles. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. What do you need to flourish? You need to have godly resolve. Godly resolve. So I'll start there. Daniel writes in verse 8, you remember, that he says, I resolved that I would not defile myself by eating the king's food or wine. Remember that part of the story? It's the very beginning. He said, I'm not going to do that. Now, we don't exactly know why, okay, he, he refused these things. We don't know if it's because they were offered to a pagan god in some sort of ritual ceremony, and therefore it would compromise his conscience. We don't know if it was against God's law, if these things were like not kosher. It doesn't really matter. Either way, the point is this. What Daniel was asked to do here, what was expected of him, violated both, both God's law and his conscience. He couldn't do it. So he resolved that he would not defile himself because it violated God's law and his conscience. But here's what's interesting about Daniel's resolve, and this helps us uh, understand, like learn, what what do we mean by resolve? What what does it mean to have resolve as a Christian, as exiles? What does that mean? Well, look, in verse 7, it's really interesting. Remember, in verse 7, it says that these four men, Daniel and his friends, were given new names, remember that? And each of those names paid homage to a Babylonian king. It was, it was uh, Babylon's attempt to redefine these four young men. It says they were given these names. Now, that, that word given in Hebrew, in the original language, appears here in verse 8 too. It's hidden within the same word for resolve. So, what's Daniel trying to do here? It's purposeful, okay? Everything that, like, those kinds of connections are, are not accidental. So, what's Daniel trying to do by recycling the same word in verse 7 into verse 8? And here's, way, here's what the subtle message is that Daniel's trying to convey to us. He's saying this, if you want to make it as exiles, you must have a limit on what you allow. If you want to make it as exiles, you have to have a limit on what you will allow. He's saying this, in other words, he's saying, look, Babylon, you can give me a new name. You can give me a new home. You can give me a new language. You can give me a new context. You can give me a new culture. But you cannot give me a new faith. He's saying, I'll, I'll concede those things. I'll, 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 give those, I'll release those things, but there's a limit. There's a line I, I can't cross. He's resolved that he will not defile himself and violate his faith and his conscience. So to make it as an exile, to flourish as an exile, there has to be this no-nonsense dedication, commitment to do what is right, to do what God has commanded you to do and what is right in your own conscience, okay? No-nonsense commitment to do what is right. That's what resolve is, but I want us to also notice the tone or the nature of this resolve that Daniel exemplifies. Uh, We've already seen that obviously it takes quite a bit to hit this limit, doesn't it? Daniel's, like I said, he's he says, you can give me a new name, new culture, new context, new language. He, Dale's released a lot. He's conceded a lot already. So it's taken quite a bit to provoke this, this resol- resolution, hasn't it? But the story goes on in, in verse 8, and it says what? That Daniel approaches the chief of the eunuchs, the head honcho in this, uh, this program that he's in, and it says what? He asked for permission that these things would be taken from him so he would not defile himself. He asked for permission. So then Daniel, he's hard and fast. 
He's resolved to not compromise and be faithful. He will not budge. But how does Daniel respond? Does he declare culture war? (laughs) Does he become defensive and rude and demanding? Does he lose his mind? Does he plan an escape from Babylon and say, all right, I'm out of here? No. Verse 8 tells us that he sought permission that he might not defile himself. Daniel is respectful. Not disrespectful. Daniel is gentle. He's not abrasive. Daniel is humble. He's not entitled. Daniel is reasonable. He's not erratic. So you remember how, back to the story, how the chief responds. The chief essentially says no. He says, I'd like to, I'd like to help you out, but if I give you that, the, chief, the king's going to have my head. And so what does Daniel do? He goes to the next guy in the chain of command, <laughs> and he asks him in verses 11 and 12, read that with me. He says, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs has assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, test your servants for 10 days, lest be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. So Daniel, notice here, this, he, he was balancing back and forth between this resolution that, that I cannot defile myself, but doing it in a way that is attractive, doing it in a way that is agreeable and humble and respectful. So he still is trying to remain godly while being resolved. See that? He works for a a solution. He works towards a productive solution in this situation, a solution that works not just for him, but that works for everybody. See that? This is godly resolve. We think these two things are often enemies, that we can't possibly partner these things together, this no compromise, no nonsense resolve, and humility and tenderness. No, Daniel shows us that these things coexist together. So Daniel embodies both resolve and godliness. They pair together well. So I'm reading this book right now, just as as I'm studying Daniel, I want to, of course, resource myself. I'm reading this book called Evangelism as Exiles. Uh, It's written by a missionary who was in Central Asia for many years, and he comes back to the the States on on, uh, 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 leave. And here's what he writes about what he observes as he returns back home here. He says, as I've returned to my home country, I'm going to read a lot here, okay? I just want you to see what he says, what he observes. <clears throat> he says, As I've returned to my home country, a country I almost don't recognize for its new laws and new loves, I've also returned to a church environment that is deeply concerning. So often now, American evangelicals are despondent and hopeless, specifically in light of our fading cultural power and social influence. Our knee-jerk reaction is to bemoan what is lost, to throw up our arms and call foul. As the ground erodes beneath our feet, we tend to fight for our rights in the public square and slam our opponents on social media. We're fearful about our future. More and more, I see Christians incensed when the world mocks us and our faith. But we seem to have no trouble disparaging others with whom we disagree, whether it's for their position on the environment or economics, guns, or gays. We stand opposed to so much of what we dislike in the world, but then we live much like the world. And then we're surprised when the world sees us as phonies. So many of us are in love with this present world, yet it seems we'd rather keep the world, or more accurately, its sinners, at much more than an arm's length. Far too often we're happy and hope-filled people as long as our churches are prospering, as long as we have a seat at the cultural and political table but it's highly unlikely we'll invite the world, other races, other creeds, other lifestyles around our own very kitchen table. We're of the world, but somehow not in it. 
And then he goes on to write, he continues, he says, a total reversal is happening in our nation right now. Christians, they used to be respected in our society. Churches were were revered institutions. Serving as clergy was a noble profession. As such, we could leverage that status to our evangelistic benefit. We could invite people to church and assume they might want to come. We could host evangelistic events with well-known speakers and expect a captive and large audience. We could run a summer children's outreach or Sunday school and think even pagan parents might want to get their kids some religion. But our secular world is increasingly suspicious of religion. Christians are no longer part of the problem. We're, sorry, uh, pardon me. Christians are no longer part of the solution. We're part of the problem. Pastors are no longer trustworthy. Churches are a suspect. Bible believers are bigots. Thus, the days of attractional evangelism are waning. The times of relying on the gravitational pull of our social standing to bring people into church, a Christian camp, or a revival meeting are all but gone. Listen, listen to this. The time is coming. The time is coming. And is here now. Is already upon us. When the world won't listen to our gospel simply because they respect us. However, they might listen if we respect them. Because how can we expect homosexuals to believe our concern for God's created order when we don't dignify them as people made in His image? How can we call our coworkers to submit to Christ as Lord when they don't see us gladly and respectfully submitting to our own boss? How can we tell of God's love for the world when we exhibit disdain and revulsion towards our neighbors? How can we demonstrate a Christ-like comparison compassion for our enemies, when all they hear from us is concern for our rights and privileges. To honor others is to have a genuine care and concern for them. So this is what we must do, even for those who do not have concern for us. What this missionary is describing, this kind of living in the tension where it's not going to be fair, (laughs) and it's not going to be fair, uh, we shouldn't expect reciprocity, you know, a reciprocal uh, uh, transaction and relationship with the world. In- instead, conduct yourself as an exile. Conduct yourself as someone who loves your enemy. This is what Daniel embodies. This is what Daniel models for us. A respect for others that is not frustrated by disrespect. It's not frustrated by marginalization. It's not respect that's earned or conditioned. What this missionary is describing is what Daniel embodies, a resolve to honor God, but to do so attractively. An honor to honor God, but to do so attractively. So please see, okay, that it's possible that the expectation is for us to have resolve, to have limits on what we will do, concede on certain things, but only so far, but to do so in a way that causes people to scratch their heads and say to themselves, I don't agree with them. I don't even like what they think, but I can't imagine my life without them. I can't imagine this office, this, this, this city, this neighborhood without them. That's what godly resolve will do. This is the expectation. I want to read for you for a few verses from the New Testament that, that say this. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may what? Adorn. That means attractively wear the doctrine 
of God, our Savior. And then later on in Titus, he says, remind them, your congregation, Christians, everyday Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show respect, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is the standard, resolve and godliness. It's possible to live and hold these things in tension. So first, if we're going to flourish as exiles, it takes godly resolve. Second, though, this is essential too, to flourish as exiles. It takes revealing trials. It takes pressure applied to us in our lives that reveal who we really are and what's really underneath. So you remember Daniel orchestrates, you remember Daniel orchestrates this testing. He approaches that, that uh, person in charge and he asks them, hey, give us vegetables and water only for 10 days and then test us at the end of that 10 days and see what's happening, see where we're at. So you remember that. Uh, and the question we come to this is, all right, so how does this apply to our lives? This, this period of testing with vegetables and water, how do we apply this to our lives? Uh, who here remembers the Daniel diet? Anyone remember that? Yeah, early 2000s. That's right. That fad, right? Where you go to any Christian bookstore and you'd see cookbooks and handbooks on how to live like Daniel by basically being a vegetarian. <laughs> Crazy, like so smart, right? Great marketing. Is that how you apply this? Is that, is that the takeaway from this passage? Or, or, hey, listen, does this, and you remember Daniel, Daniel's friends at the end of that 10 days of testing, they come out better than all the rest. Remember that? So is the right takeaway from this that all I need to do is have godly resolve and in the end I'll be better than everybody else? Is, does what this mean is, is the takeaway that everything will work out perfectly like it did for Daniel and his friends? Is that the right takeaway? Luckily, we don't have to wonder because actually the New Testament tells us exactly what this means for us in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Okay, so these seven churches that John writes to in Revelation are representative of all churches throughout all time. So he's talking to us as much as he's talking to them. And here's what he says. Verse, uh, chapter, Revelation 2, 8 through 11 says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Listen here, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, commentators, you might, you might have the question, why is he used to this? Ten day, this you know, he'll be tested for ten days. What did that happen in history? Is that a historical fact? No. What commentators say is that what, what John is doing here, what God through John is, is doing here, is he's saying, just like Daniel endured that 10-day trial, at the end of that 10-day trial, it revealed who he really was. It, it set him apart. Make him it made him particularly distinct from all the rest. That test, that trial, it revealed who he really was. In the same way, that will be the case for all Christians throughout all time. What is typical of Daniel, a period of trial and testing that reveals who you really are, is also the same case for us. And what God is saying here in the book of Revelation is, this testing, it reveals who really is authentic. Who really is going to inherit the crown of life? Who's going to be faithful unto the end? In other words, 
our authenticity or inauthenticity will be revealed. Who you truly are will emerge. Just like Daniel, you are supposed to become distinct from the rest through 10-day testing, a whole life of 10-day testing. So either through this testing, through the pressure applied, through the things that God has appointed for you to walk into, okay, either it's going to cause you to flourish because you're faithful or it's going to result in you folding. So C.S. Lewis, okay, he has this great line in this book called A Grief Observed. He writes after his wife dies, and he says this about himself. That's some conclusions he comes to about himself as he goes through this trial. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. Catch that? God does, we go through testing of our faith, not because God doesn't know what we're made of, because we don't know. He says, it was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness, bo- the witness box, and the bench all at once. The point is, our trials prove something. They prove who we really are. And in, in our case, wh- what, is that, what is that? What are our trials proving? Here's what they're doing. They're proving whether or not you are in exile. They're proving whether or not your home is here, and you believe that and live like that, or your home is elsewhere. So there's nothing quite like suffering. There's nothing quite like trials and testing that does, that does this, that separates us, that disconnects us from all of the fantasy and illusion and, and false vision of the good life that this present age communicates and markets. There's nothing that causes us to be disillusioned with what is present and long for the next world to come and feel like we're in limbo. What that does is it confirms for us that we are exiles. It reinforces deep down in our very souls and validates that, yes, you are meant for glory. Yes, there's more to come. You wait, you pilgrimage, you journey, but your home is not here. Your home is the next life. And we need that reassurance, don't we? We need that, don't we? We need to be reminded that it's worth not compromising. We need to be reminded that it's worth not settling. We need to be reminded that our hope, listen, listen, our hope is not here. It's not in people. It's not in your occupation. It's not in experiences. and It's not in success. Our hope is not here. And if that is the case, you will be Howling and insufferable, you will be miserable and so unhappy because nothing is going to fill that, that demand in your heart for the best. Our hearts cry out for the best, <laughs> and it's ahead of us, and we wait as exiles. And that's what this testing, that's what this 10-day trial that we go through time and time again show us. Stop settling for the world, the best is yet to come, not in this life, in the next You are, in fact, exiles, loved by God, and He will persevere you. He will carry you. He will sustain you. So the trials reveal to ourselves, listen, and to everyone else who's watching you, and they are, that you are an exile, that you're different, and that you're destined for a better land. But something happens um, when we go through these trials, (laughs) when this pressure is applied, and it's this, we realize that we need God's help, that we, that we in, in and of ourselves, don't have what it takes to, to persevere. We need God's help. We need help from 
outside of us. And that's what Daniel also shows us, that if we're going to flourish in Babylon, we need God's help. So all throughout the story, remember Aaron read the story for us, Daniel's friends received God's help. Here, go back to the first sequence. It says, when Daniel asked the chief of eunuchs for that favor, he asked for permission. It says what? That the Lord granted Daniel and his friends favor and compassion in the sight of these, uh, uh, the chain of command. So God is working to give Daniel grace and favor and compassion. And then Daniel, remember after that trial, the, the vegetarian diet, the veggies and the water, it says they came out 10 days later, fatter, more plump than all the rest of the, of the people. And we, we know that's a miracle, don't we? Because a life without barbecue is a sad life. But yet they end up superior. They end up rising above, uh, above the rest as, as better, as superior. And then in verse 17, one more time, it says this. Look with me in verse 17. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. And the end result is this in verses 19 and 20. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than everybody else. So here's the point, okay? Daniel's resolve and his endurance through this testing were all empowered. His perseverance, his durability, his flourishing, it was all empowered and enabled and orchestrated by God. God is at work around Daniel. God is at work in Daniel. God is at work through Daniel. God is at work before Daniel. God is at work behind Daniel and above Daniel. Every which way, God is there, helping, aiding Daniel to persevere and to triumph. It can be said that there is nothing Listen here, there's nothing that Daniel and his friends here, their success, their flourishing that's taking place in this story, it can be said that all of that, all of that can be attributed to God. All of that is attributed to God. Therefore, listen, as we apply this to ourselves, there is nothing that we have. There is no skill that you have. There is no capacity that you have. There is no opportunity that you have had. There is no success that you have experienced that is not ultimately credited back to God. God did that. And listen, God gave you those things and put you in those places for his purposes so that you might live attractively as an exile. Not to leave when it gets inconvenient and hard and the pressure is applied, but to stay and to flourish and other people watch. And listen, we have it better than Daniel, even. Us here, post-cross, we have it better because we have the Holy Spirit who's indwelling us. And let me explain to you why that is so crucial. See, the Holy Spirit, His purpose when He resides in you is to supernaturally apply God's love to your heart. He, he connects you to the Father, to the throne room of God, and the love and the joy and the delight that is filling the atmosphere of heaven the Holy Spirit applies that and reassures it deep into your heart. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in you. One of the purposes. I would say the primary purpose is to do that, to reassure you of God's love for you. And so here, here's why this causes you to flourish. This is God's help and it causes you to flourish. Because without that, if you don't have the sense that you are loved and accepted and approved, 
then you will leverage your work and your performance. Everything in your life becomes a, a, a bartering piece to somehow win for yourself love and win for yourself acceptance. It, it's a way for you to establish yourself before other people so you can be respected and so that you can be celebrated. But, listen, if the Holy Spirit is communicating to your very soul that you're already loved, no strings attached, that you're already delighted in, that you're already celebrated and approved and accepted by God the Father, then you don't need it from anybody else. So here's the breakthrough that happens. Here's the flourishing effect that takes place. When you try to use your work and your relationships and your skills to earn for yourself these things, you invite all sorts of anxiety and worry and fear and insecurity into your life, and you just end up tripping all over yourself. You end up producing nothing good. You end up actually not realizing your potential. You end up not not producing anything that is different because you keep tripping over yourself. You're overthinking things. You're in your own head. You're trying so hard to get everyone else's attention, but you've been liberated from that. You are released from that if you believe in your heart that you are loved by God and your heart is abundantly filled up with His approval of you. So you know what happens? You stop caring about the outcome. You stop caring about what you're producing. You stop caring about whether or not people like what you're doing and you just enjoy the craft. You just enjoy the skill. You just enjoy the moment. You enjoy the present and you let God take care of the rest. No anxiety, no fear, no insecurity because nothing's wrapped up in it. Your sense of self is not connected to what you do. And so what? You flourish. And you end up producing something better anyway you're not tripping over yourself anymore. And so you, as an exile, by the way you carry yourself and the character that is exemplified through you and in the things that you produce from your own skill and capacities, man, you just look remarkably different. There is something about you that is strange yet attractive. That's what God's help does for us. This is Daniel. It's a great story, but here's the reality. We are far too comfortable in Babylon most of the time, aren't we? Like we, we, we settle down here and, and coast here far too often, don't we? Uh, the, the truth is, we don't always like the testing and get on board with what God is doing. We don't, do we? Sometimes we, we just reject being in exile and we reject God's help because we're just comfortable here. The, the reality is, we need, okay, we need a version of God's help that will both empower us and comfort us, that will energize us to live as exiles, but also comfort us and give us security that when we fail and misstep, which we will, it'll be okay anyway, that God's not going anywhere, that He's not abandoning us. We need a version of help that shows us, that motivates us, empowers us, and that gives us comfort. So what is that version of help? What are we going to look to that's going to empower us and comfort us as we are exiles? Go with me to John chapter 1. It'll be behind me. And here is the answer. I hope you see it as I read it. It says this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
In Him was life. And here we, here's where you see something interesting. And the life was the light of men. That means that the light and life came to us amongst men. That means that the very glory of heaven, the Son of the Prince of Heaven, <laughs> leaves the ecstasy and bliss of heaven to come to us and to be an exile himself amongst us. And we keep on going. It says, the light shines in the darkness. He enters our world as an exile, but listen, the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth, or another way to say that is full of godly resolve. So look, Jesus, he comforts us. This version of help that we need Jesus comforts us because He has come to us in our time, in our space. He has entered into your darkness. He has entered into my darkness. And look, our darkness, our sin, it has not overcome. It has not defeated Him. He has defeated it. Through what? Through His atoning death. Through His substitution for us. By entering into our place on the cross, dying the death we deserve to die, living the, death, living the life we should have lived, all in our place so that what? So you and I can be reconciled with the Father. We can be constantly connected with Him forever and ever and ever. And our missteps and our failures and our errors and our inability to be the perfect exile, it will not result in us being cast out ever. Because you and I, when we unite ourselves to Jesus by faith, we are seen as no different, no different than the very perfection of Jesus. That's comforting. Because Jesus has left the glory of heaven and come to be an exile for our sake, to connect us to the Father forever, comfort. But also, if you bring that, okay, if you bring that into the center of your being, if you build your life around this model, it becomes your mode of operation. It becomes the very power by which you live by. Just as Jesus lived full of grace and truth, no compromise but attractively, that's what that means. If we bring this into the center of your life and obsess over Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, you become more like him. You become more like the exile he was. And look, I can't think of any human who has flourished more than Jesus has can't think of anyone who's flourished more than Jesus has. He, who He is, the life He led, how He loved people, yet how He stood, you know, didn't back, didn't back down, didn't con- Everything about Jesus is just wildly attractive, and that's what He can produce in you. If you let Him, if you bring this into the center of your life, and the best of news is this, that he's going to finish what he started. That he came and entered our darkness once. He's going to return and do it once for all. The penalty of sin, it's already been paid. The power of sin, it's already being broken in our lives. And one day, the very presence of sin will be removed from our reality, and we will no longer be exiles. We will be home at last. But until then, we flourish by what? by godly resolve, by revealing trials, and with God's help. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you and ask that you would help us to be your ambassadors.
that we would live attractively. Give us composure, give us character, give us trust in you. And God, I pray above all else that you would help us to set our hope in you. That we look back to the cross and see how you've loved us and how you delight in us and how you'll never abandon us and that you will also, Lord, help us to fix our hope on the day when you return. When you make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes and that we will no longer be exiles. And so, God, we wait for that day and are excited for that day. Be with us until then. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.